Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The year is 1957. Twelve men enter. Twelve men really want to leave. The movie? Twelve Angry Men. everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. Paul Shear will be joining me in just a second. But this is, as ever, the show where Paul and I go through the AFI Top 100 list and talk about these films today. How do they hold up? What is amazing about them? Are they blowing our minds like Sunrise did? Like our lovely recent episode on Rear Window did? Awesome to see that film again. Or like today's film, 12 Angry Men, will do in the modern era. Uh, last week, yes, we talked about Rear Window, which was, I think, a really nice movie to bump up on the list as everybody's locked up inside. And we got some lovely feedback. This one warmed my heart. This is from Peter Nason at 7Samurai4040, who said, one of my father's first dates with my mother was seeing Rear Window in 1954, which I think he means seven, unless your parents are time travelers. And Peter says, according to my dad, who turns 90 today, after the movie, he barely had any feeling in his hand because Peter's mother had squeezed it so tightly throughout the suspenseful film. That is very, very, very romantic. Thank you, Peter. Um, Michelle at Michelle Cold TW says, I was in a knickknacks cute stationery stop in Bali last week. They had a small display of picture frames with only one holding a picture. And that picture was of the ethereal goddess that is Grace Kelly, which absolutely, Michelle, inspires me to find religion, perhaps for the first time in my life. Thank you for that. And NEM, Nedward Narwhal, he also like wanted to talk more about that idea that when Stuart looks out of his window, he really is seeing his possible futures regarding marriage. Happy newlyweds, popular seemingly single girl, depressed lonely lady, relationshipless bachelor, comfortable old couple, and a marriage so bad it ends in murder. I want to thank Gary Holmes at Gary Holmes for uh, <laughs> saying that he was shocked by the image in rear window of a shirtless Jimmy Stewart and decided to pay us the favor, I suppose, by um, sending us shirtless photos of Jude Law in uh, the new Pope wearing just his underwear. That is um, a gift. Thank you very much, Gary. 
Over on the Facebook group, Adam Pillman writes, you know, at one point, Lieutenant Doyle refers to the, quote, couple of hundred knives that Jeff has probably owned in his life. Does anybody think that that number is way too high? I am middle-aged and I have owned maybe one third of that number in my entire life. What am I doing wrong? Have I been owning knives incorrectly this whole time? That is an excellent point because actually, Adam, even if you own like a third of that, that's still like 75 knives, maybe. That's still a lot of knives. That is still a lot of knives. And I always hear that like if you have one beautiful knife, it's all you ever need. I'm a devotee of four knives, but really I only use two. Yes, a couple of hundred knives. That's a lot of stabbing. That's a lot of steaks. A steak sounds delicious right now. And also on the Facebook group, Nicole Rogers writes, I don't know if any of you here are murderinos, by which she means fans of the podcast, My Favorite Murder, but this movie, Rear Window, strikes me as the ultimate murderino fantasy film. Having one of our neighbors commit a murder and being the only one to figure it out. Isn't that basically the dream? And she says you could actually see this somewhat in how the women in Jeff's life immediately jump in to help him find evidence. And not to generalize, but murder crime is a subject that women tend to be more interested in than men. The idea that Grace Kelly and Thelma Ritter are so excited to go dig up the flower bed. Yes, I can absolutely see uh, myself and some of my friends being like, you know what? I'm into this. I'm into this. Let's go. Murderinos forever. And by the way, I just want to give a shout out to the entire Unspooled community, uh, many of whom, if not all of whom, are safely at home, self-isolating, doing what they can to keep the planet healthy, even though it is a little bit hard. I have been myself dreaming about trying to pick up this fruit tart from my favorite bakery and when can I do that and how can I make it happen? It's all I'm really thinking about. Um, so with that in mind, thank you to people like Eric Nelson for writing in at Real Eric Nelson. He says, I'm in-house with three kids and worked overtime. So this episode gave me some laughs. He sent his blessings. Thank you for that, Eric. Vrij at Droopy MCC said, the interview at the end of the Rear Window episode was really helpful for everybody homebound. At least I can work from home. We have to feel for those who are losing income at home. And I want to give an extra special shout out, as I love doing, to Kate Littleton, who runs the Facebook page, and she's on Twitter at KateLit27. She has just been absolutely killing it, trying to come up with extra activities, movie nights, all sorts of fun things for people to do as a group and resource guides like the one she created for Spoolers um, that she has on the Facebook group about what to do during isolation, how to help, how to do, how to, how to just be and how to, you know, make sure that this community that we have is a really good, valuable resource. So Kate, thank you for all of the work that you'll be doing. Kate is uh, planning on coming up with a trivia game that we're going to be doing online on the, oh yes, on Spool Discord that is now uh, underway. Uh, And I think Paul and I are going to jump in and at least host the uh, final grand prize round of the trivia contest. I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, So everybody out there, we're thinking about you. We care about you guys. And with that in mind, I guess we're going to talk about another semi-isolation film, 12 Angry Men, the story of 12 people locked in a room deciding on a murder trial. Our call-in for this episode was call-in with your best defense for a movie character that you think might have been not given a fair trial for the crimes they may or may not have committed. I want to hear what you guys had to say. Let's listen. Uh, I feel like this is going to be heavily contested because there's quite a bit of evidence that was gathered, but I think it's because the evidence that was gathered was uh, illegally gathered. I don't think that the FBI was allowed to do what they did in this movie, and uh, that is the injustice that was done to Caster Troy when they stole his face in Face Off. I don't think that would stand up in court had Caster not died at the end. Another character that I, or characters I still deserve a very fair trial, 
are the wet bandits. I'm sorry, but as you can see, based on their their appearance, they had been brutally assaulted, tormented, and tortured several times by a sadistic serial killer named Kevin McAllister. Now, I may be a simple country podcast listener, but I don't think that Prince Humperdinck from The Princess Bride is going to be held down by justice for very long. A lot of that finale involves a lot of breaking and entering and murder being done by the protagonists or heroes of the film, but I don't think he's going to get nailed down by the Justice Hammer. He's going to escape that Justice Hammer. Thank you for those. Those are all, I would say, completely justified, or at least when I hear the argumentation. Um, and thank you for reminding me that I should probably be watching Face Off this week because I love Face Off. I, I know I can speak for Paul that he just rewatched Princess Bride, and my God, he really thought that movie held up. I love that movie so much. Why isn't it on this list? And so with that, it is time to get into our episode about 12 Angry Men. And since I'm on the mic right now without Paul, I get to say his uh, very questionable tagline that I have yet to fully commit to. Let's unspool it. Everybody in the whole cell block was dancing to the jailhouse rock because the year is 1957. The Asian flu pandemic claims over a million lives worldwide and 70,000 stateside. Always topical here on the show. Uh, the final episode of I Love Lucy airs and the first episode of American Bandstand debuts. The Frisbee is invented and other popular toys are Slinkies and Hula Hoops. Popular songs are All Shook Up by Elvis Presley, Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers, and the Banana Boat Song, a.k.a. Deo, by Harry Belafonte. Audiences are watching Around the World in 80 Days, Jailhouse Rock, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and today's film 12 Angry Men. It ranks number 87 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list. It did not make the previous list. So it's a newbie, Amy. Listen to a clip from the film. Brother, I've seen all kinds of dishonesty in my day, but this little display takes the cake. You all come in here with your hearts bleeding all over the floor about slum kids and injustice. You listen to some fairy tales. Suddenly you start getting through to some of these old ladies. Well, you're not getting through to me. I've had enough. What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. For this kid, you bet I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. <laughs> All right, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? 12 Angry Men. It is directed by our buddy, Sidney Lumet, who we last talked about when we did Network. It is based on a play and then readapted into the screenplay by the same man, Reginald Rose. And it stars 12 angry men. And well, some of them are calm. And it stars 12 men. Some of them angry. Some of them very calm. One of them, juror number eight, played by the only movie star of the entire batch, Henry Fonda, who produced the film. It was originally a telefilm. He was like, that is amazing. I want to do this as a proper, proper movie. He made this his producing debut, the one and only film Henry Fonda ever produced, starring himself as the good guy who slowly gets the 12 men of this jury room to change their minds from deciding that a young 18-year-old boy who's accused of killing his dad is not immediately guilty. Perhaps he could be innocent after all. He is the man who was there to do what America is supposed to do, have a real conversation, jury of your peers, and talk about this question of reasonable doubt. 
it is a film that I think believes in America as a country, even if it doesn't always believe in the individual Americans who make it up. But it does believe that reason can win out if, if people are willing to listen. Well, Amy, we're continuing our conversation about isolation. Uh, here are 12 men uh, isolated in a room, and we're seeing different sides of them. You know, in Rear Window, he was looking at people and putting ideas on them. Here, we're getting to see how people really think. I think one of the interesting things about this film, and it's from 1957, it's as relevant today as it was then. You know, people sometimes have other agendas underneath the surface. And I think one of the most interesting things about the film is it's about a deliberation, but we don't really know the race of the character who is being uh, deliberated. We don't know a lot of the facts, but we're just hearing people's biases about this person. The only thing we kind of really know is they're not, uh, I would say, from like Northern European descent, I guess. Is that the right way to say it? I think so. And we can tell that just from the anger of juror number 10, who's a guy played by Ed Begley. And he is the racist juror who's always referring to a them. And we might not know who the them is. I think initially it was written as as Puerto Rican, but in different adaptations hmm. since then it's changed. But he's talking about the, the them. And so from that, you know that they're not him. And he is a loudmouth white guy who I might also say watching it this week has a cough in that tiny room, which really freaked me out. He keeps coughing, blowing his nose. <laughs> he's like, oh, man, you know, these hot weather colds can kill you. I'm like, juror 10, everything about you. Get out of here, man. <laughs> Um, it's so interesting though, because they also unite Jack Klugman with the accused because Jack Klugman is someone who is from the slums, right? And he doesn't present that way, but it's revealed in that moment that he is also like the accused. And I think that that's actually a really smart way of dealing with this bigger issue because this movie is about... So many things. And I think it is about racism. I think it's about communication. I think it's about the the benefits of our jury system. I think there is a, a beautiful underlying uh, ideal of what Americans should be doing. There's so much here. And I think because it's a little bit vague in those moments, it allows you to really uh, connect with it in, an, in a really intense way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this film really hit me hard this week because, to be honest, it kind of felt like, how do we have a rational conversation in the social media age, colon, the movie? You know, it's it's a room divided into loudmouths drowning out other people's abilities to have a rational conversation. So it's basically Twitter. You know, it's basically yeah. people with their own agendas writing in all caps like, you're an idiot if you think this. How can you think this? Here's an emoji. Here's an emoji. Here's an emoji. Well, people who are trying to just have a conversation are finally like, eh, screw this. But I do want to play, actually, the clip you're talking about, the clip about Juror 5 talking about being from the slum as kind of a point of speaking up, as a point of trying to resist this loudmouth man who's talking about how people from the slums behave. Because I think it's such an interesting example of how peer pressure really works in a room like this. Let's listen to Juror 5. He was born in a slum. Slums are breeding grounds for criminals. I know it and so do you. It's no secret children from slum backgrounds are potential menaces to society. Now, I think... Brother, you can say that again. The kids who crawl out of these places are real trash. I don't want any part of them, I'm telling you. Listen, I... uh, I've lived in a slum all my life. Wait wait, a minute. Please, I... I've played in backyards that were filled with garbage. I mean, 
Maybe you can still smell it on me. Now listen, Sonny. Come on now, there's nothing personal oh, about there this. Was oh, personal. come on, fella, he didn't mean you. Let's not be so sensitive. This sensitivity, I can understand. Okay, look, let's stop the arguing. We're only wasting time. What really popped out to me there, watching it, is... Juror 5 speaks out, and he's the one who gets peer pressured to relax and not be so sensitive. The peer pressure doesn't go to the people who are insulting him, insulting slums. The peer pressure is, just behave, just get along, don't raise your voice. And that very first person that we hear talking is Juror 4, the kind of cold-blooded one who, you know, wears the glasses, he's the the banker or the stockbroker, and he just comes at it with this analytical point of view that's not the loudmouth racist of the other guy, but the, the like, we know all the facts here. Trust me, I'm the smart guy. I'm rational. In that E.G. Marshall performance of rationality, you know, pretending that it's disguising racist thinking, like stereotypical lazy thinking, is as scary as the loudmouth racist to me. You know, I think one of the other things that's really damning about this conversation is that kind of... Um, idea that you see a lot around racism, which is, oh, but not you. You're one of the good ones. You know, you know, Jack Klugman saying, I am like this guy. And they're like, well, no, we don't mean you, but he is. And I think that that's, you know, for 1957 to be showing all these sides, you know, it, it really reminded me in, in many ways of a Do the Right Thing, another movie that takes place on a very hot day that is talking about racism from many different points of view. And that's a relationship that Danny Aiello has with Spike Lee's character in the film. And I had to imagine that when Spike Lee was writing that film, he was inspired by this film because there are so many similarities. I know how much Spike Lee is just a fan of classic cinema. Uh, you know, obviously very different movies, but exploring, you know, right and wrong uh, you know, through the eyes of of race. And again, we don't know what the race is. And I think that's what Spike Lee does so well and do the right thing. But here, this is kind of this, this general idea of how racist thoughts and stereotypes can really start to make you make bad decisions. I love that you said that. I love that you kind of drew that parallel between this and do the right thing. I think you're dead on. You're right, you're right, you're right. Because at the beginning, they do make that big point of being like, it's the hottest day of the year. And the film does exactly what you see Spike Lee doing as well, like showing the sweat on people's faces, making you, the audience, feel that heat in all the scenes and like the brief moment of the relief of the fan coming on, the rain happening, you know. It is a film that I think so smartly takes on the tension of the room and the weather and makes you feel the literal heat in the way they shoot it, which, gosh, yeah, I feel like absolutely you're right. Spike had to have been drawn inspiration from this, right? Well, let me continue with my point of view with Spike Lee in this, which is also camera angles. You know, the camera starts in this film kind of above all the actors' heads. And as it gets more intense, you're going tighter and tighter into people's faces. And that's something that Spike Lee does a lot in Do the Right Thing. You're getting these very tight close-ups on people. And um, I don't know if it it brings you into what's going on in their mind or it almost you know takes away their face and gives you more of just the anger it just becomes they become emotion uh, rather than people which is you know kind of very much like inside out which again i'm going to bring one more comparison in uh clearly uh anger is uh lee j cobb he's even dressed the same in inside out you may not have seen that movie amy because i know your your uh <laughs> your disdain for all things animated 
I have seen Inside Out. I am not a total monster. I'm not a total monster, I swear. <laughs> but you didn't like it, I bet. I thought it was good. It's not, it's not, it's not my favorite oh, Pixar. Oh, come on, it's Amy. Not my favorite Pixar? <laughs> it's really good. What's wrong with saying good? Oh, it's also up there with one of my favorite wow. Pixar's. Yeah. Three yeah. angry men over here mad I said it was good. I'm glad I didn't say it was fine. You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> I think what I really like about this film is there are some heightened characters, but for the most part, everyone's kind of playing it real. Like Henry Fonda is like Atticus Finch in the same way that he's not trying to be a hero. He's not, uh, you know, and I hate this term, but like a social justice warrior. He's simply a person who has questions. He's not so steadfast. He, you know, as the trial goes on or as the, as the deliberations go on, you kind of see that he's maybe thought about this a little bit more, but it doesn't feel like he is any bit of a, a superhuman type of guy. He just seems like a real person who has doubts. Yeah, I mean, he comes in so slow into the frame as the most important person. I mean, he's the guy who, when you first see him in the courtroom, is, you know, very focused on what the judge says as they give them their last instructions. And I think there's a lot, when I finished the film, I went back and actually rewatched the very beginning, the way we meet the characters, the way we see them in the courtroom, like now that they're all fresh to me again. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I want to actually play a little bit of the judge's instructions to them. But while this is happening, you really see little glimmers of everybody's personality already, just in the way they're sitting on the stand. Who's looking off? Who's staring intently? Who's caring? Who's already looking a little cynical about this whole procedure? And I love how you can hear that even the judge himself is kind of checked out of the idea of justice. He sounds bored. Yes. <laughs> you continue. You've listened to a long and complex case, murder in the first degree. A premeditated murder is the most serious charge tried in our criminal courts. You've listened to the testimony. You've had the law read to you and interpreted as it applies in this case. It's now your duty to sit down and try and separate the facts from the fancy. One man is dead. Another man's life is at stake. If there's a reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, a reasonable doubt, then you must bring me a verdict of not guilty. Now, if, however, there's no reasonable doubt, then you must, in good conscience, find the accused guilty. However you decide, your verdict must be unanimous. In the event that you find the accused guilty, the bench will not entertain a recommendation for mercy. The death sentence is mandatory in this case. You're faced with a grave responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen. I mean, the case, by the way, just to lay it out again, if people haven't watched this movie in a little bit, is this teenage kid has been accused of getting into a screaming fight with his dad. Um, he has been accused of saying, I'm going to kill you, and then stabbing his dad with a switchblade knife. Um, after his dad hit him, let's be fair, the dad, dad is not him. totally yeah, innocent in this. We, exactly. See, now you're Henry Fadiing the situation. I mean, the facts, <laughs> as people think that they heard it, is that they saw, the kid was seen being stabbed through the window of, an, of a train going by by his neighbor across the street, almost like somebody's trying to rear window the situation, you know? Yes. His neighbor rear windowing it, looking out the window, says she saw him stab him. His neighbor downstairs, an older man, says he heard him yay, say, I'm going to kill you, and then run out the door. So everybody in the room thinks these are the facts. All of the it's people who very, guilty. It's a very <laughs> cut and dry case. He had the murder weapon. He bought the murder weapon. He doesn't know his alibi when he was questioned by the police. Uh, people heard him in a fight and he has an eyewitness. It's a it's a cut and dry case. So when they come in there, 
the jurors are literally like, let's get this done so we can go to the baseball game. And I love that idea that, you know, we talk about the justice system in this movie and of the three minutes uh, that takes place outside of that deliberation room, that scene that we just heard is one of them. And it kind of shows the court in a really interesting way. It same way that Rear Window starts, you know, the camera's moving through. We're getting to see what the court is. But you're also seeing that for a very, you know, high profile, not high profile, but important case, this is we're talking about the death sentence, there's no energy to the room. It's just a day in, day out uh, process. And I think one of the things that this film does and should be shown to everyone who is a potential juror is... Don't just try to get out of here. Let's really do the best we can. Like, let's not be the lazy versions of ourselves. And to know that that idea is still prevalent today and that it was like that in 1957 is like, oh, wow, how far we haven't come. I mean, there's so many things in this movie that feel the same. It's like, it, you know, it, these are not bad people in the jury room. They're just like, let's go, let's go. I want to get home. I want to get out of here. You're you know, right. we've seen... Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's this really interesting contrast between like that very first shot we get, you know, Lumet has us on the ground floor right outside the courthouse, like panning up, seeing these columns. It's one of those shots that, you know, really signifies awe and has. I mean, ever since when we saw things like, you know, Jimmy Stewart and like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, like look at this building, look at what this represents about our government, our democracy, how special, how monumental it is. And then it's contrasted like two and a half minutes ish later by this listless, boring room that looks incredibly ordinary by people going in and out of the bathroom. And he takes away that grandeur and he says, like, do we measure up to this? You know, can the right. in actual workings of our government inside the building measure up to how we want to imagine it from the outside? Well, I think the minute you go inside the building, that veneer starts to crumble. It's like because before you get to the jury room, we already are feeling it, you know, and it's sort of this idea that we respect the monument of the legal system and these buildings and the court. But when we are called to do our service, we may not have that same respect because it affects us. Again, this idea of what we're living in right now with uh, Corona is this idea like, you know, well, oh, but I can't do my blank. You know what? I can't go on Rise of the Resistance at Disney World. Oh, how dare you? You know, it's like, uh, but I think there's this idea of like, well, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> Your know, body's it's, it's, going on Rise of the Viral Resistance. Isn't that an exciting <laughs> enough game? I said it to a friend of mine. I said, I think Rise of the Resistance is one of the best theme park rides I've ever been on, hands down. I was like, but if that thing isn't just built to give you coronavirus, I don't know what is. It's just you're <laughs> jam-packed with people. You're touching people. Uh, people are touching you. They're breathing on you. You're touching things. It's bad news. Can't wait to go on it again. It's amazing. Not now. Um, <laughs> I mean, can we you know talk, what? by the way, like, also, while we're still talking about this introduction, how weird is the lowercase Helvetica font credits? Like, did they seem weird to you? Because I was like, wait, 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 wait. I mean, is this movie trying to sell me a compostable toothbrush on Instagram? Like, what is with that font? Well, you know what's so interesting about it was that this movie feels, or I guess doesn't feel, but it was low budget. And I was like, I wonder if because it was a low budget, they just didn't have enough money to actually do a, a really, well, just like a, a a nice graphic design package. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'm reading too much into it. Or Helvetica seems like what the uh, the stenographer writes in. 
Yeah, I mean, it's modernist in a way. Like, I don't remember seeing a Helvetica font before this. I associate Helvetica with the 60s, but I guess it's like maybe also was there in the 50s. Uh, it turns out it's actually not Helvetica. Oh, point of fact Ooh. from Devin. Hey, yeah, Devin. Um, I'm, I'm doing a little research here online while you guys are talking about it. It turns out it's a typeface called Trade Gothic. Um, oh. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if it was made specifically for that or what, but I mean, you can, I, the one thing that kind of makes it stand out from Helvetica is the G. The G has got like a real uh, heavy curly Q kind of aspect to it, which is a lot more flourishy than most Helveticas. Huh, wait, did Helvetica already exist? Helvetica was developed in 1957, so oh. set, wow. ba- about the same time as 12 Angry Men, but probably wouldn't have wait been available. Second. Are you saying that Helvetica may have ripped off this font? I think that's very font? possible, Paul. I think that's very possible. Wow. I mean, either way, font there's this wars. idea. Huh, that like, that like, uh, lowercase, smooth little tidy caps were for fashionable. That was like becoming a trend right then. That so could it's be. basically like flash forwarding back to like what? When did Helvetica become trendy again here? Like 2010, 2011? I think so. I mean, yeah. you know, you can listen to our other podcast about fonts. Um, <laughs> the font cast? <laughs> Wait, now I'm going to look this uh, up. Like, when did the Helvetica, Helvetica documentary come out? That's that a good was documentary. 2007. Yeah. 2007. So I guess Helvetica wow. is, well, we should be done with Helvetica by now. We got to do like, Curlicue, angry, fonty madness. <laughs> Enough with clean lines. I'm so t- I'm so tired of clean lines. Me too, Amy. Even though I made my son when I was homeschooling him today do that specific thing about making sure his G came down and uh, hit all the lines on the on the line piece of paper. Speaking of, does your font, does your son have good handwriting? Because I was noticing that when all the men in Twelve Angry Men start writing guilty, not guilty, most of them yeah. have very good cursive, except for a few who do block letters. I miss cursive. I was never any good at cursive. Really? Oh, oh I have I'm the worst handwriting. Left. Do you not know oh, that I, I have, have the worst handwriting? I have the best handwriting. People marvel at my handwriting. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. My handwriting is so bad. <laughs> Sorry, sidebar, but my handwriting is so bad that once I left a friend a gift on their door and I wrote a little uh-huh. note like, enjoy this, blah, blah, blah. And they thought I was mad at them. They thought my handwriting said that I was mad at them and that it was a sarcastic <laughs> gift. I was like, What? That's my handwriting. That is the perfect Amy story, (laughs) hands down. You're right about this movie kind of just launching you into this world. And, you know, so rarely do we get to see a film like this where you're meeting the characters in a very confined space. You're not getting to see any outside life to them. And we really learn more about them as the film goes on, again, like Rear Window, you you have these preconceived notions and they start to break down. Um, but you know the one thing I couldn't really get out of my head talking about comparisons and stuff um, was I really felt like Henry Fonda is the basis for Columbo. <laughs> He's so... Um, I Look, I'm not saying, but I'm saying... Oh, and one more thing. This knife, I bought this on the street. Boom. You know, it's like there's a very like... There's a method to his madness. And I think that's the only issue I really have with the movie because what I do love about how it starts is that Henry Fonda is like, he's not steadfast in his conviction. Maybe he is guilty. I don't know, but we should, we deserve to talk about this. And then as it comes out, like he was there at the scene of the crime, he bought the knife from a local store, which by the way, would have gotten him kicked off of uh, jury duty. Just in case anyone knows, you cannot visit the scene of the crime <laughs> 
uh, unencumbered, <laughs> nor can you uh, buy a, a replica murder weapon. Yeah, that is a thousand percent the- true. Like, I mean, like Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she was like, this is one of my favorite films. This is the film that made me go and pursue law as a career. And yet when she used to have to talk to jurors, she'd be like, you are not allowed to do this 12 Angry Men style. You are not allowed to like go and try to like make your own investigation. <laughs> you know, do not follow this. But actually, let's listen to that speech that Henry Fonda gives about why he initially votes no and just like why he wants to remind everybody of what really they're doing, how responsible they are for being there. Then what do you want? I just want to talk. Well, what's it to talk about? Eleven men in here think he's guilty. No one had to think about it twice except you. I want to ask you something. Do you believe his story? I don't know whether I believe it or not. Maybe I don't. So how come you vote not guilty? Well, there were 11 votes for guilty. It's not easy to raise my hand and send a boy off to die without talking about it first. Well, now, who says it's easy? No one. Well, just because I voted fast? I honestly think the guy's guilty. Couldn't change my mind if you talked for 100 years. I'm not trying to change your mind. It's just that... We're talking about somebody's life here. We can't decide it in five minutes, supposing we're wrong. Supposing we're wrong. Supposing this whole building should fall down on my head, you can suppose anything. That's right. Look, what's the difference how long it takes? Suppose we uh, do it in five minutes, so what? Let's take an hour. Ballgame doesn't start till 8 o'clock. I mean, I like that he's just negotiating for an hour. And actually, as we were listening to that clip, I was found myself thinking about Rear Window again because of, I was thinking about how much there's vestigial outside noise or diegetic mm. diegetic outside noise. i don't know why i use the word for like i still have flip foot i don't know hands when i'm a fish i don't know <laughs> uh, no, that he that you hear just the noise from the window outside that that's kind of your background reminder of what's happening and he he uses sound so much in that same way and also even her window they make a point of being like it's 95 when when um yeah when jimmy stewart starts to go crazy so there is something about heat Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, so Amy, I think watching this film, I think one of the reasons why it stays uh, relevant is because we are still dealing with issues of racism and and issues of the louder voice winning over the softer voice, the reason mind being bullied by the bully. But also, you know, thinking about this time that we live in where there is this, you know, term, this fake news term. This idea that, you know, somebody could be watching this movie and use the same rationale as Henry Fonda to prove that the earth is flat, that's, a, you know, or hollow earth or whatever. You know, it's like it, 
the hero of the film is someone who goes against the grain. And I think that may have given this movie a bit of its staying power because everyone can see themselves as that character, as the hero. You know, I'm just bringing another point of view into this. I'm just bringing another point of view. And yes, his point of view is, as we understand it, on the just side. But anyone who has an outlandish point of view is like, but I know those are the facts. But, but, hear me out. What about this? And I think that what, that's what makes it so funny when some of the other people in the room who have been like, I believe in facts, I believe in facts, when the facts start to disagree with them, immediately say, like, I'm sick and tired of facts. You know, like, I value yeah. facts until I don't value facts. And then your facts are not facts. And who cares about facts? And the way that some of the men in the room change their mind on what's important to them just to win. That lawyer made a lot of sense. Well, that lawyer was a bad lawyer. Like, what? They just keep changing however they're feeling to make sure that they. it's like it's about the winning more than anything. Well, I mean, you see this all the time. You're hearing that. That's my kids playing. Oh. <laughs> they play the accordion? accordion. <laughs> I'm sorry. Your kids own an accordion? We have a little kid accordion. <laughs> that's that's a terrible <laughs> gift. Did somebody give that to you as a, as a mean present? It's like, here's an accordion for your kids. I'm going to make your life awful. Next time that we record one of these, I'm going to introduce you to Papa Chicken, and then you'll see what awful is his. <laughs> I have I have three things in my house that are terrible. Papa Chicken is one. Papa Chi- Papa Chicken is um is a chicken that you hold in your hand, and when you violently shake it, it just goes like, <laughs> like that for nonstop. Um, and uh, and then the other thing that I have, which we've hid is well two things i have a fart gun i don't have a fart gun my kids do they have two they both have fart guns oh, so they run around the house shooting these minion fart guns which is like <laughs> and then the the worst the ultimate terrible thing is this hamster that i got sammy um that just records everything that you're saying and immediately plays it back in a hamster voice oh my so God. every the last five seconds is always repeated so like you want some orange juice what's orange juice uh, where are you going? Where are you going? <laughs> and it just sits on the counter. So it just it just repeats the last thing that you said in a very high pitched, crazy way. And then it, and it will bounce around the counter like da, 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 da. it's crazy. Okay, so we were talking about Hollow Earth. We were talking about uh, yeah, this idea of uh, now I'm picturing Twelve Angry Men with the hamster and the chicken and the fart gun <laughs> as jurors. I don't want to with things. <laughs> um. <gasps> Who would be the fart gun? I think the fart gun would be the baseball guy. Because everything he is is like, <laughs> whatever, let's get out of here. I don't want to waste time. I mean, I, I, I think it's more Martin Balsam is the fart gun because it's the jury foreman. He's got to call order. He's got to have that, that gun. <laughs> I actually want to do play the way that like Juror 7 operates. The guy who's just like, I have a game. I have a game. Because his way of making sure that justice isn't served, I find interesting because he's not angry like the others at the actual kid himself, you know, he's mm. not like he did it. I, I'm that much of a racist, bigoted guy, or I hate my own son that much that I'm convinced he did it. He's just like, this is wasting our time, which is a, an equally pernicious way of trying to get people just to stop. Hey, what are you getting out of this, kicks? Or did somebody bump you on the head one time and you haven't gotten over it? Maybe. You know, you do-gooders are all alike. You're always blowing the stacks over some guy that fan. But what are you wasting that time for? 
Why don't you donate five dollars to the cause and maybe it'll make you feel better. This kid is guilty, pal. It's as plain as the nose on your face. So why don't we stop wasting our time here? We're gonna all get sore throats if we keep it up, you know? What difference does it make if you get it here at the ball game? No difference, pal. No difference at all. Oh, man, getting sore throats at the ball game. That's something we don't have right now. Thank God. <laughs> Woo, but no, that, that kind you, of like, well, you're, you're just, what's the bother? What's the bother? But that noise, by the way, that you heard um, at the beginning is because he's cornered our beloved juror eight, Henry Fonda, in the bathroom to try to make his case. But I also feel like he's not peer pressuring him. He's having a kind of rational conversation. And, and that's what I, again, appreciate, like, this room, these jurors, as they turn, as they start to let themselves in on on a different way of thinking, you see how that affects people. Some people can embrace a new thought, and this is a this is a bigger goal. And some people will fight against a new thought until they can't anymore. And I love seeing you know, how we adapt to new information. I mean, that's something that, you know, we're in a, an age of so much information and some people just want to not pay any attention to it. I think some people embrace too much of it. Uh, and the idea is like kind of coming to this middle ground where we can really listen to what's going on and take ourselves out of it and 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 not be preconceived on our notions or what we believe is right or wrong because we don't always know the answer. I mean, can I actually ask you a little bit about the peer pressureness of this film? Because mm. in here, I will just say up front that this comes from me being a woman watching this movie. Like to yeah. me, this movie has this interesting other level that I that I, where I'm like, oh, this is what men are like when they're alone. You know, this is a movie with no women. So, I mean, you see the female bathroom in the back. I'm like, okay, there's a female bathroom there. N- right. No women. Nobody's going to need to use that. No line at that bathroom. So I watched. Well, by this the movie. way, this would never be a juror box like there would never be 12 men uh 12 white men in a juror box i don't even think in 1957 i i just couldn't imagine anyone just being like this is representative of of you know our jury of our peers i don't think that that fight was actually happening that i we can talk about that in a second yeah i did some research on juries in the 50s but yeah like to me i see this movie and i'm like is this how men are when they're alone you know i picture men like jockeying for power in this way. And so I, I want to talk to you openly about it because I don't want to necessarily ascribe maleness to this movie if it's about mm-hmm. the human experience. And I don't know if for you, you see the maleness in it as well, as much as I do, if this is a male movie or if, or if this is a person movie. I guess, yeah, you're right. It's like the exclusive maleness of this movie makes me ascribe men as the problem when I don't know if that's what the film was actually getting at, what Rose was getting at, if he was trying to just say it's a human problem. But it's hard for me to take that all male out of it. I'm kind of blown away by that question because I didn't even think about how this is the way that a group of straight white men would solve a problem. Because I'm often a big believer that we need to have uh, more women in governmental positions because I feel like they are the people that are going to be reaching out across the aisle. They are the ones that are thinking about the greater good. No, I think you really kind of stumbled onto something there in the sense that this is a very unique way of deliberating. I saw it as very natural. I understand these personalities. But you're right. Different points of view would create a very different film, especially 
you know, in a case that is, has some sort of uh, racial bias to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's interesting that, you know, Reginald Rose and Cindy Lumet, they don't let the meeker people off the hook, though. You know, they're like, if you're not standing up for what you believe in, you're also culpable. You know, a lot of the people that we wind up really loving in the film, you know, the older man, uh, Jer Nine, um, who's the first person to kind of help side with Henry Fonda, the really meek guy, number two, the people that we see in the in the movie get bullied they vote guilty too right at the start. And that idea of how peer pressure works on them and what it's like to to not stand up or to be weak or to be dominated, it's like he's not really letting the the people who get dominated, who are bullied, they're not blameless here. And I find that really interesting too. It's almost like this is how bad things happen, is showing us it's how hard. the quiet people don't stand up. And it's lovely to watch them find their courage later on as the energy in the room starts to change. Yeah, it's hard to stand up to a bully. And I think it actually takes um, more courage and energy and effort to do that than just to go with the flow. And, you know, the people who fight against the grain are the people that I think as a society we always look up to, the people who just don't take the status quo as the normal way of doing things. But it's a longer, harder road, and you just start to get a trail of people that are trying to make you come back to them. Why don't you just do it our way? Just do it our way. Why are you doing it a different way? Don't do it a different way. And like, and we see that in every everything, you know, um, yeah, from sports to government to social interactions. I mean, it's you you just see this rebellious nature of why can't we just do things the way that makes the most sense? That, you know, we're not questioning anything. I think the Me Too movement is an amazing representation of that as well. Like. But wait, that, why are we? Why is everybody me too now? Or are we all? You know, it's like no, no, no. We're just having a conversation about this, and what will happen after that will affect how we move forward. But there's this—you don't even want to have that conversation because to even have that conversation is like, am I implicated in this as well? Am I wrong? And and and, and you start to unravel. Yeah, you know, and I'm thinking. I mean, this comes up so much, of course, when we've been talking about movies, especially movies from this period, about you know, HUAC and the blacklist in a country that just watched this play out. I mean, the McCarthy hearings, they were on TV in 1954. You know, people were at home in 1954 watching this trial of a sort, you know, shambling accusatory thing Mm -hmm. happen on TV. Like we watched the OJ trial in the 90s. They were watching it live. And I think in a way, maybe it did hook people in the audience on being interested in what due process looks like and argumentation and fighting and bullying and... And and I wonder if any of that passion was in Lumet for sure, but also in the audience, you know, wanting to watch a court trial on TV. I mean, actually, you know, 1954, that was the same year that 12 Angry Men premiered on TV. And it's crazy. It premiered in that way that, like, you know, like Grease Live. It was it was done live, which I think is where a lot of Lumet's camera work comes from in this version. You know, Lumet didn't direct the original one. That was actually directed, by the way, by Franklin J. Schaffner, who did Planet of the Apes and also Patton. So Planet of oh, the wow. Apes guy did the original yeah, let's even listen to a little bit of it. But what's so interesting when I watch parts of the original 1954 one is because it was live, he had to do kind of that long, lovely camera work of, you know, cameras wandering this way around the table, kind of steady, long takes at the beginning, making it glide. Stuff that you really do see Lumet pick up on, but he kind of had to do it out of necessity. You couldn't do as many cuts and close-ups because it was live TV. I picked this clip, actually, because this is Juror 8 speaking, um, the Juror 8 of this of the original one. 
And you hear him stammer and sound a little nervous. And people who reviewed the original 1954 Twelve Angry Men, they couldn't tell if he was acting if it was the character. And honestly, I'm not sure. So let's listen. Look, let's stop this bickering. We're wasting time. It's your turn. Oh, well, I, um, I have a peculiar feeling about the trial. I felt that the, uh, the boys that, or the, uh, the counsel for the defense uh, didn't uh, make a thorough enough cross-examination. There were too many questions left unasked. Well, what about the ones that were asked? For instance, let's talk about that cute little switchman. You know, the one that nice, honest kid admitted buying. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about that. I'd like to see that knife if I could again, Mr. Foreman. Could we get it in here? And so, yeah, I am really intrigued about this idea of a country going through a trial on TV, you know, watching this trial that same year, and somebody like Henry Fonda, this moral authority guy, you're watching it and saying, we need to do this film. We have to be talking about this. We have to be talking about what justice looks like in the country because I don't think we just saw it. I mean, and actually, that even happened, I think, to Lamette himself. Like, he was mistakenly named in the blacklist. He was innocent. He was pointed at, he had the finger pointed at him. He was cleared. But I, I bet that had to be there. That I mean, how could it not? Well, I mean, I'm going to play a clip for you that may burst this bubble. But I think sometimes what we do consciously versus unconsciously is something that we don't really understand. And uh, here's Lumet about why he made this movie. If you asked me specifically, when you did 12 Angry Men, were you interested in the justice system? Absolutely not. I was interested in doing my first movie. And I was very impressed that Henry Fonda wanted me to direct it because he had seen something I had done off Broadway. It was the most obvious motives. 12 Angry Men, I think it changed the law in England. Great. That isn't why I did it. I wasn't out to change the law in England. I mean, I don't know. I want to believe a man when he says who he is as a person, but like... Lumet is a guy who I find to be so interested in justice. I mean, that's the theme in so many of his films. Oh, I mean, you know, from uh, the Vin Diesel classic, Find Me Guilty, to The Verdict with Paul Newman. I mean, he's been... Wait, he did a film with Vin Diesel? Oh, yeah. Find Me Guilty. (laughs) What? I didn't know You didn't know about this? It's one of his last films. Um, (gasps) No? Vin Diesel, uh, yeah. This is like when Vin Diesel was kind of fresh off of the beginning Fast and Furious and maybe Riddick. And he's like, I'm not doing those sequels and franchises anymore. I'm a, I'm an actor now. And he did Find Me Guilty. He's got a bald head. It's, uh, yeah, take a look at the trailer one time. Not now. I won't burden you with that. But no, he comes back to it a lot. And I think why he comes back to it is, in my mind, and I know what he's saying here, uh, but I also feel like it's the one time that you get to see a character have to wrestle with what is right and good and can you live with the consequences of your decisions it's it's a it's it's unlike any other you know role in our life whether you're a lawyer whether you are somebody who's convicted whether you are a jury member it is a moment of reflection and change and choice and i think that you know as a just as a storyteller it it's the most engaging world to be in i mean Clearly, Law and Order has been on the air forever because of that. Well, yeah, and I do think part of why Law and Order is on the air is because of this movie. You know, I mean, Reginald Rose himself, the guy who wrote this film, he and the Mike kind of had the same background. And they both grew up as Jewish kids in the slum. And I think they identified 
a lot with, you know, the characters who are prickly about being considered immigrants. Their parents were immigrants, you know, and immigrants being less than, which I've, I feel like they even put a little bit of themselves in the personality here of, of juror number 11, the watchmaker, who's like the naturalized American citizen who really, I think, is kind of the most patriotic out of everybody in the group. Let's listen to him. Well, I suppose somebody has to start it off again. I beg pardon. I beg pardon. What are you so polite about? For the same reason you're not. It's the way I was brought up. This fighting, that's not why we are here to fight. We have a responsibility. This I have always thought is a remarkable thing about democracy, that uh, we are, oh, what is the word, uh, notified, that we are notified by mail to come down to this place to decide on the guilt or innocence of a man we we have never heard of before we have nothing to gain or lose by by our verdict this is one of the reasons why we are strong you should not make it a personal thing and i think that that beautiful speech makes it so much more heartbreaking when later on he genuinely with an open mind asks one of the jurors if he knows what reasonable doubt is and the guy just steps. He's like, your kind doesn't need to tell me. It's almost like he's offended that a person who might have learned English as a second language is trying to define words to him like a real American. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to get back to kind of the law and order roseness of it of it all, you know, in 1961, Rose actually launches one of the first courtroom TV shows. Like he takes this thought and he keeps carrying it with him that he wants to investigate it and he wants to investigate it. And he does it with E.G. Marshall, the guy who plays kind of the cold-blooded guy. And it's E.G. Marshall and the dad who on the Brady Bunch um, when he was younger. Oh, wow. The guy's going to grow up to be the dad on the Brady Bunch. And they're playing a yeah. father and son um, legal team. Robert Reed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's it's this so really fun. cool show. It's called The Defenders. And one of the things that's really known for is it spent the 60s. It spent four of the years in the 60s doing legal TV episodes about a lot of stuff that was just like so relevant. I mean, some of the episodes they did, they did episodes on like. Doctors who mercy euthanize their patients. They were talking about that on the show. They were talking about pornography. They were talking about teachers who were fired because they were atheists. They were talking about neo-Nazis. They were talking about, like, defending civil rights demonstrators. I mean, it was a show that was right on the hot button of legal issues of the 60s. Actually, okay, you know that I have not seen Mad Men, and I will probably never see Mad Men unless this quarantine goes forever. But there is an episode of Mad Men that I read about that even touches on The Defenders, the show that Reginald Rose went on to make. And it's, it's this one where they do an episode of Defenders that's about a doctor who's accused of performing abortions. Maybe people remember okay. this, but apparently there's an yeah. episode of Mad Men that's all about how in real life, that show, when it aired, all the advertisers pulled their sponsorship. And so, I remember that. Yeah, so I think there was an episode of Mad Men where they were like, we can get you a cheap deal if you want to be a sponsor of this show that's on abortion. And that was Reginald Rose, the guy who wrote 12 Angry Men. I love that idea. And I think in a weird way, Legal shows are able to tackle issues um, in a way that seems a little bit distant than than an actual show would. I mean, you know, because Maude, didn't she have an abortion? And that was like a big yeah. deal. Yeah, I think she and, did. I think she did. You know, and Ellen coming out of the closet and that, you know, made her lose all of her sponsors. I think we are connected to sitcom characters. It's a little bit more tenuous. But when you put it in a legal show you can kind of just see like, well, is it legally right or wrong? Or what are we saying? And, you know, it allows us to have a little bit of a distance from it. Yeah, totally. And actually, I wanted to play a clip from an episode of The Defenders. It's from an episode called Killer Instinct. And it's about a guy who is accused of murder. 
Um, and he's a, a vet. And I, he, this is him in the courtroom, the man accused of murder, explaining that he actually would like to change his um, plea from not, not guilty to guilty. And I want to play this clip of him talking to see if anybody recognizes his voice. People who defend me say, if there hadn't been a war and I hadn't been taught to kill, I would never have killed Frank Cook. But in a way, wasn't it my fault there was a war? I mean, whose fault is it that there are wars and people learn to kill? Aren't we all to blame? Aren't we all bullies at one time or another, in one way or another? Aren't we all guilty? Aren't we all responsible? I think we are. I think I am. And that's why I don't want to run away from this thing. I plead guilty. <laughs> Name that wow. voice. Name that voice. You know, I was really thinking about it and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I think I'm close. Is it Flava Flav? <laughs> <laughs> You're correct, sir. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. If anybody out there was screaming, the one and only Shatner, baby. Oh, wow. I, I was really thinking about that's That's Shatner before, I think, really chewing into the Shatnerness of it. Oh, by the way, I want to apologize to everybody when I mentioned Cybok. On the show, uh, it was not Cybok. <laughs> I, I made a mistake. I knew who I wanted in my mind. It was a different character. I apologize. He was the, the head of the Klingons in the undiscovered country. No big deal. Anyway. <laughs> totally fair. Um, well, this is Shatner like five years before he's on Star Trek, and he's so hot. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. He's got a, he's got a look when he's like the Twilight Zone. Shatner is a very attractive man. Um, by the way, great biography, too. Uh, if you ever want to read, like, yeah, I think he has two biographies and the audiobooks are superb. Um, Amy, I want to talk a little bit more about Sidney Lumet. I know we talked about him at Network, but I think one of the things that's so interesting about him is here he is getting tasked with this movie coming out of TV. It's a low budget movie. Um, it fails to make a profit, uh, even though it gets nominated for Academy Awards. Henry Fonda, uh, had a deferred salary that he never, uh, never made, uh, Reginald Rose, also deferred his salary, unknown whether or not he made his money. But Sidney Lumet took this chance to direct these actors, some of them who, according to Jack Klugman, were kind of already a little prima donna-y and put them all together in a room of equal billing and made them rehearse for two weeks. You know, he filmed everything in 21 days uh, in a total of 365 takes, but he kept them together and he really worked them. And and one of the things that I was interested in is how he keeps a spontaneity and these scenes alive. He said that the job of a good director is to rehearse but not over-rehearse the scene so it still feels uh, spontaneous, uh, but yet the actors are so familiar with everything that their character knows and does that it feels lived in. And I And I love that idea that he can walk this line and, you know, we're getting to a time where we don't even get to rehearse anymore as actors. We just kind of put it together. And I love that this is one of the tenets of his directing style. And I think that's why you have such amazing performances here. It's really true. And I think Lumet himself would argue that rehearsal actually makes your time be more valuable, you know, when you're yes. making the film, because it, 
I, from what I've understood about people making films right now, directors have to fight for every day of rehearsal time they get. And Sydney Lumet was like, let me direct these kids. Let me rehearse with them for a really long time. Or, you know, not even long, reasonable. And then they were so well oiled that on set, he only did like one, two takes of everything. And he got through the movie. It was supposed to be 20 days. He got through it in 19 I mean, if you rehearse, oh, wow. you can save oh, money, I thought it was man. 21 days. Oh, wow. Look at that. All right. So, yeah. yeah I mean, that's came pretty in amazing. under time. That does not happen. Like, under time like that. And what- Well, I mean, they also did a lot of crazy things in this film because um, they couldn't afford to, like, change the lighting all the time. So, when you would see a character in one angle lit there, they would just run through all the different sides of the conversation in that lighting. So you would be shooting one side of a scene weeks apart from when you were shooting the other side of the scene just because they couldn't afford to make these in moves. You know, most of the times in film, you're shooting a scene, two people, you get one side, other side, you know, you get you get all your coverage of that. Here, they were just shooting one side and then, like, oh, well, another character will be there later. Well, shoot that side. And they just kind of moved around like that. But that also is a testament to rehearsal that they were ready to go at any point of the film, they didn't, you know, they didn't have to work up to it. They were ready for it. Right, that they knew it so well, backwards, forwards, every single direction, they were able to kind of modulate it like that, turn it into tiny pods. Because basically this movie was edited with actors all kind of separate from each other. They just were, you know, one camera just kind of nailing it. So he created the pace and the tone, but the actors brought that intensity. I'm amazed. I'm really amazed. Me too. I mean, you know, we talk so much on this whole series about like, Directors who are awe-inspiring, like a Kubrick, or directors who are actors' directors. You know, like mm. Weiler is one of them, and I think absolutely Lumet. I mean, Lumet to me seems like such an actors' director. Like, his people get Oscar nominations. He makes them shine. He makes them good. I mean, his actors are tremendous in here. I mean, I even just want to play, like, one of my favorite monologues that I love just because. And this is the old man, um who's psychoanalyzing the other old man who's one of the witnesses on trial. They do, they do that whole really great sequence of could the old man have walked from his bed over to the hallway in time with the camera yes. on Henry Fonda's legs as he's dragging his legs because the old man has a limp. But this psychological moment, I mean, in a way, it reminded me a bit of Rear Window, you know, people speculating and theorizing, and in the case of Rear Window, almost always being wrong, unless they're Grace Kelly, who's a genius in that film. But yeah. this man and his psychology... I love it, and I love the dead space at the end of this scene because I find it so painful. He was dragging his left leg and trying to hide it because he was ashamed. I think I know this man better than anyone here. This is a quiet, frightened, insignificant old man who, who has been nothing all his life, who has never had recognition or his name in the newspapers. Nobody knows him. Nobody quotes him. Nobody seeks his advice after 75 years. Gentlemen, that's a very sad thing to me, nothing. man like this needs to be quoted, to be listened to, to be quoted just once, very important to him. It would be so hard for him to recede into the background. Oh, wait a minute. What are you trying to do? Tell us he'd lie just so he could be important once? No. He wouldn't really lie, but perhaps he made himself believe he heard those words and recognized the boy's face. That's the most fantastic story I've ever heard. How can you make up a thing like that? What do you know about it? And then there's that long pause where you start to wonder if he's talking a little bit about himself. I mean, that performance... 
is heartbreaking, isn't it? And to watch mm. him find his voice later on in the film, you know, to to be the old man who gets to make a difference, who gets to make a difference in one boy's life. I love him so much. You know, I just want to touch one other thing that you talked about too. You talked about that amazing shot of uh, Henry Fonda's legs when he's imitating the old man coming to the door. And, you know, this movie was shot with the uh, the same DP as another AFI film, uh, which was Boris Kaufman, who did On the Waterfront. Oh. Uh, yeah, which, uh, you know, is another beautifully shot film. He also did Long Day's Journey Into Night, uh, another play, you know, adaptation. But this film really has to live and die by an amazing DP. The original DP dropped out at the last uh, second. That's Gerald Hirschfeld, who did Young Frankenstein. And I think the movie is better for it. We talked before about the angles and the way that we really are elevating this into a movie, you know, a play into a movie. And we talked about that in the past a little bit about how some things just feel like it's a play just translated as a film and it doesn't really capture it in the same exact way. But this you know, really did things that the that uh, a stage play could never do, and that that is that closeness. That is that living in these characters um, and and doing things. Uh, you know, I think that it just really is beautifully shot. And you talked about those tracking shots in the beginning. Really, really helps every part of this and keeps it moving for a film that doesn't leave a room for an hour and you know change. I mean, there's so much staging in this film that I find so beautiful, so much of an effective use of space within that room. The way that he has people get up and move, leaving people isolated in the frame. At one point, remember when um, juror number three, the sadist, by the way, random numerology fun fact, uh, when Reginald Rose wrote his script, he very very clearly listed out all 12 of the jurors, what personality types they they represent. You know, he said that juror three is a very strong, very forceful, extremely opinionated man within whom one can detect a streak of sadism. He's a humorless man who is intolerant of opinions other than his own and is accustomed to forcing his wishes and views upon others. He also said that you should note numerology in his jurymen in that three plus seven equals ten, which I think he means hmm. to say that three, juror three, juror seven, and juror ten are really the problems here. I don't, it makes me want to add up the other ones. Like, what do you get if you add, like, juror four to juror twelve? Well, but no, but you're talking about this thing that, you know, this film you know, is used to teach team dynamics and conflict resolution in business schools. It's also used to teach um, English overseas. Um, and they basically all rally around these personality types. And what you described here is like, you know, um, you know, there's number 11 is polite. Number nine is thoughtful. Number 10 is biased. And then there's, you know, three is stubborn and two is open-minded and seven is uninterested and four is methodical. Uh, and you get to see you know, a weak personality, that's during number one, a meek personality, that's number two, aggressive is number 10. It really is a, like a Rosetta Stone for types of American citizens, I guess, to a certain degree. It's true. I mean, I was kind of thinking of like that graphic too of like chaotic neutral, you know, oh, and yeah. too neutral. And I was like, who would be everywhere? You know, where does all of this go? I mean, like number four, I feel like is definitely, what is it like lawful evil? Yes. Right? Law- yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I want to fill all this out. I never know what I am, honestly. Sometimes I think I'm chaotic neutral, but I don't know if that's true. I was going to say you're chaotic good. Really? I'll take that. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just made a very, a very uh, jumped in and just said it. I don't think that you're chaotic. I, um, I think you're lawful good. You're very good. I think you're, you're, you're more good than me. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, 
but yeah, I think when I look at Lumet and I, and I look at this film, it's an important film to be on this list. I think it's a film that um, accomplishes a lot of similar things to do the right thing. Um, but I also just wanted to take a moment to talk about Lumet's other films. And, and now that we know that we have the two on the list, Network and this, are we exactly positive that it's the right two? I know that we didn't feel that way about Network, but you know, the verdict, Murder on the Orient Express, he did Failsafe, which was the dramatic version of Dr. Strangelove. The Wiz, you know, we don't really have that many musicals. I would love to see The, the Wiz. Uh, I mean, and The he Wiz also is did... terrible, but I do love it. I do love I it. I know. It's... Oh, that scene where it looks uh, like Diana Ross's veins are going to pop out of her neck at the ending. Oh, so <gasps> crazy. Um, and Death Trap, which is uh, another great kind of uh, Christopher Reeve film. Uh, you know, like... He has such, I mean, and he's, and the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, as the pawnbroker is one that I would throw on. I think the pawnbroker is so oh, interesting if people haven't seen that. I just feel like these are the two movies that are, again, like we said, oh, network and this, you know, but I just, I was looking at his just body of work. And I was like, wow, he's a director that I would love to go a little bit deeper into and just look at this, uh, these films because each of them really, they bring up something in me when I think about the verdict, when I think about Orient Express, when I think about the Wiz, when I think about Death Trap. I'm like, wow, it's like there's a lot there. He does a lot in his his films. His body work is pretty varied as well. And we have, especially in this conversation we keep on having about who's a varied director on this list. He definitely definitely has done some cool things. Well yeah, and I mean it is interesting that the two movies of his that are on the list are his most male screamy movies, maybe. You know, there's this whole mm. thing in the film here about screaming people get attention and his screamiest films are the ones that we paid attention to and put on the list. You know, over well, something you know, quieter like The Palm Broker. Well, speaking about screaming and attention, you were talking before about how there are issues in the jury system at this point in 1957. So I was just under the belief that 12 men could never be on a jury like this. And are you saying that I'm wrong? Yeah, I mean, the history of women and juries in America is really complicated and a little state by state, but there weren't real problems getting women on juries up until the 1950s, up until actually 1957, when the Civil Rights Act of 1957, it gave women the right to settle, to serve on federal juries. They didn't have that right before then. Because when you okay. look at the history of America and women, you know, there's this thing that doesn't always overlap, which is how much are women allowed to be citizens in this country? And that goes back to the beginning. You know, women yeah. are Americans, but women are allowed to vote. You know, and once they're allowed to vote, you know, are they allowed to serve on juries? And some states, you know, a lot of rural states actually gave women the right to serve on juries back in the 1860s. But they didn't do it necessarily because it was considered opt-in. It wasn't like you get a jury summons. It was like if you want to opt into being a juror, you can. But we understand that women probably shouldn't do it if you don't want to because – you know, maybe you're not educated enough to do it. Maybe you're just needed more in your house or maybe you're just too emotional. You know, not like these guys. Definitely. They're very good right. at keeping emotions out of it. Women, I don't know. I mean, there's some funny comics about like putting women on Dre's or funny or if, with an asterisk, which if people remind me, I'll like tweet them when this episode comes out. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing with women and juries is that for a long time, because of this opt-in idea... It, the only women who were able to opt in were the women who actually were able to leave the home and wanted to do it to make a point. You know, they it was a lot of right. you know, liberated-minded, independent, middle-class women who didn't have to be at home with their kids or didn't have to be working. They would opt in to be like, we need to demand that women actually have an equal say in this country for right. a lot of the reason you're saying. I mean, in 1957, there actually was a case 
where a woman in Florida, she was in this really abusive marriage. It was physically abusive. It was emotionally abusive. She winds up snapping one night and hitting her head with a baseball bat in the middle of the argument. And he ends up dying. You know, she doesn't like beat him to death, wow. but she hits him in the head and he winds up dying a couple of days later. And she is put on trial in front of an all-male jury in the late 50s. And they decide that she's guilty after 25 minutes and they put her in jail for 30 years. And so her wow. lawyers appealed it and they said she did not get a jury of her peers. You know, she got a jury of all men who were like, she killed a man, put her in jail, you know, right. and didn't think about what it's like to be a woman in an abusive relationship. But when they tried to appeal it, they lost. You know, so this is a fight that's still very much going on even here. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, this is a lot of where she really gets to work on her career. You know, she does lawsuits about women getting equal citizenship through voting. You know, she says, like, having women not take an equal part in juries, you know, being treated just like men in juries is wrong for three reasons. Like, one, you diminish their citizenship by making the idea of citizenship duties optional. Two, Women do have a right to a jury by their peers as well, by having women on it. And three, um, if men are called in more for jury duty, that's not fair to men either, to be honest. You know, like wow. that women aren't required to. And she said that there is, a, quote, a flavor, a distinct quality that is lost if women are not ex or if either sex really is excluded. Yeah. And so all of that, you know. It, it could have happened in 1957 pretty easily that you would have a jury that is all men. It's it's rare still to this day that you would have a jury that is all women. And when that has happened, there's kind of a bad, notorious case where it happened, also in Florida. And that is George Zimmerman, um, who shot oh, Trayvon yes, Martin. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. He had a jury that was all women. It was smaller. It was only six because in, in Florida, you don't need 12 people on a jury. I'm not quite sure of the law there, but they were able to just have six people. It was all women, and they did find him innocent. Um, or not guilty, I don't, because I guess as this movie pro proves, there's a difference between innocent and not guilty. We don't even know if this right. kid here is innocent. We just know they haven't proven right. him guilty. Um, Reasonable yeah, doubt. And I, I think know. that that's something that, uh, you know, that anyone who's like a child of the 90s could recognize from O.J. Simpson. I mean, is there, you know, is there a doubt? If there's a doubt, you have to acquit. Like that idea, like they couldn't prove it. You have to, you know, and it, and I think that the idea has gotten more and more open to a certain degree yeah. too you know that idea it is true i mean people actually who are interested in the history of like women and juries might be interested that i don't know how people feel about this there was also some legal scholarship in the 1950s about why women should be on juries but their arguments why i think are also maybe a little stereotypical they said that women are uh, more law-abiding and more attentive to detail and actually less likely to be swayed by emotion than men. And they said that women are better to sift through lies because we have been sifting truth from falsehood deal due to our years of dealing with children who try to escape punishment by fibbing. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> yeah, pros and cons of being um, pros a woman on cons. jury. But I've never been well, called for a jury, so. You've know. never been called for a jury? No. Never? What, what do they know about me? Oh, I mean... You've gotten like you've gone in and been kicked off a jury, though. No, uh, uh, no. You've I've, never gone I, into I court. I got called in once, and then they didn't like. I didn't even get called in Pick for anything you. else. I was just sort of sitting in a room, and then that was it. I didn't even get wow. to, like that. Like, tell me about your opinions in life. Are you a single by woman way, with a cat? I, and I'm like, well, I, I was a single by the woman way, with a cat back then. <laughs> I was going to say, lucky you, and there I am being exactly like one of the characters here, like. Yeah. Uh, of course, we need to do this. And then I'm like, oh, good thing you avoided it. Good good on you. It's like, no, I shouldn't be saying that. You do not um, have Clifford's tickets right now. 
Oh my gosh! Well, should I go in right now? I think the, the I think the courts are close too. Yeah, hey, that jury box is not hobby. six feet. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co/cardcalculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar forty nine. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba da ba ba ba. So we have a very important, wonderful expert joining us today. I'm so excited to introduce her. Her name is Dr. Marissa Byers. She is a CEO and the Senior Jury Consultant of Trial Behavior Consulting. Marissa, what is that? What do you do? So I am very lucky to have such an interesting job. Um, Importantly, working hand in hand with um, trial attorneys across the country in many different types of litigation and helping them, you know, to gain an advantage during trial prep, discovery, um, and once we actually go to trial. So jury selections, you're like a person who kind of helps them figure out what jury makeup is most beneficial for their case. Right. Well, more importantly, deselection. Who are the jurors that are potentially, that could be seated? And which ones of those can we get disqualified for cause or do we have to strike? And I assume people aren't just going to raise their hand and say, I'm a bad person for this. No, they don't. So it makes it very interesting for both sides to weed out those jurors who are going to be against them from the start or likely to be against them because of some issue in the case that really hits too close to home for those potential jurors. So you have to ask people almost like sidesteppy questions, I'm guessing, to get them to admit things they don't think they should admit? That's right. That's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Did a job like this, did this kind of psychological work, did that exist in the 1950s? No. And actually, you know, trial behavior has been around since the early 80s, and it was one of the first companies to start doing this. Um, And it's a very, now it's very common. And most every trial I'm involved in, both sides have jury consultants or trial consultants. Um, But certainly, this wasn't the way cases were tried, you know, back during the 50s. Is a movie, is 12 Angry Men a touchstone for people in your industry? Like, how do people feel about it? What is ubiquitous across every case I've ever been involved with is the importance of understanding jurors who come into the case with a bunch of personal experience that's going to cloud or impact the way that they see the evidence and how they hear the evidence. And that's exactly you know, that's exactly what played out with some of the more emotional jurors in 12 Angry Men. On the flip side, and which I think is really interesting, is 
Henry Fonda's character, like the way that he is able to reposition the case and encourage jurors to look at the evidence differently is, is quite fascinating because, you know, if, if I'm looking at this case as a lawyer for the prosecution, he's somebody that I don't want to be on my jury, right? If I'm looking at this case from a perspective of the defense, he's absolutely somebody I want because he does a better job than the defense lawyer did at stitching together all the question marks, right? He did a better job of raising reasonable doubt on multiple fronts. And, and I suspect, although I wasn't there and that part wasn't, wasn't part of the movie, that he was what we call a stealth juror during voir dire. I'm sure he didn't speak up He's not the type of person that had, you know, other than maybe being somebody that wanted to make sure that jurors were fair and impartial, he didn't seem to be the person that was emotionally invested in one outcome or the other, right? So he's somebody that makes my job more interesting because how do you, how do you parse that out or, you know, identify or reveal somebody like that in jury selection? How how do you? It's also kind of blowing my mind that there are some there are some juries that wouldn't want a very fair minded person like that on there necessarily. You know, I mean, that's a very good question, um, and that's always what the you <laughs> your response is exactly what the judge says. Well, this person seems to be fair and impartial. Why wouldn't we want him on there? At the same time, the prosecution wants law and order jurors, right? They want they want people that are going to be more law and order and you know, jurors that are going to be a little more questioning of the prosecution's case there, they don't, you know, those are the people that they want to remove. Has something like a juror eight situation ever even happened? Is this like a fictitious thing that one man can kind of change a room? That's, that's a funny question too, because I was just talking to a friend of mine about this this morning and I say this. So one part of my job is to do mock trials. And so across the country, you can conduct research with potential, not potential jurors, but jurors who are in the jurisdiction and put the case in front of them. And before they deliberate, I always encourage them to speak up and speak their mind and raise their questions because it. It, we do often see it be the case that one person can change the minds of 11 others or five others or whatever the jury composition is. And it's a very interesting time we live in. Like it's a very different political and social climate today than it was during the 1950s, right? And there is a lot of motivation to stand up and make changes in this world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter on what level you're talking about. Everybody has, you know, something that where they feel you know, they want to take up the baton and send a message, make a difference, et cetera. So yeah. And I do think jurors are more encouraged today with social media to do something like that. Whereas back in the fifties, you know, there wasn't that platform. There wasn't that voice. I mean, I'm fascinated by the idea that it's that different. Well, for example, I mean, just the way deliberations was, were conducted, it would never be allowed that a juror could bring in outside evidence <laughs> to convince <laughs> their fellow jurors to vote a different way, right? Um, it would never be allowed for jurors to have newspapers or even their phones. And, and really that knife was what changed the tide, right? That was what raised legitimate questions for most of those jurors. I mean, so say, because they've been updating this movie over and over again, they did it in the 90s, of course. Yeah. Like say that you were on the defense um, side for this trial, as the jury was getting pulled together, what questions would you want to ask 
to try to maybe keep some people in that room from not being in that room? If I was a defense lawyer and I was trying to keep prosecution jurors off the jury, is that what you're asking? Uh-huh. The, the best question for the defense to ask in a criminal case like that is, okay, you know, we have this defendant, um, he has been arrested. Um, how many of you think that because he's been arrested, he's probably guilty? And that's that that law and order sentiment is my biggest challenge and my biggest goal, my biggest focus, if I'm the defense lawyer, if I'm assisting the defense lawyer, you know, pick the jury. I keep thinking about that too, just in my daily life, that there are people who, you know, really, I guess, trust in authority or laws in a way that's very hard for me to understand. I think I'm a bit of an anarchist. I don't know what you describe people like me. I mean, it seems though that there is like just a size of the population that is born with that personality or has that personality. I mean, how what is the percentage of law and order brains in the country? It, you definitely have the coast, which are more socially liberal, right? They're going to be less law and order than some of the, we'll call it the flyover zone. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but there are- I grew are, up in Texas and Oklahoma. It's okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, and yeah, and I spend a ton of time in Texas and like all in the South, but you have those more law and order mindsets where if somebody's indicted or if there's an arrest- then you have a lot of the population in those jurisdictions already believing that the prosecution is right. They're going to give less benefit of the doubt and take less seriously, you know, if you have a shadow of a doubt in terms of returning a verdict. Would you, if you were putting a jury together, ever want a room full of all men? No. Well, first of all, I think one thing I've learned, which goes back to what we were just talking about, the importance of having a good discussion is the importance of heterogeneity versus homogeneity. Um, And in most cases, you know, I can't, I mean, maybe there would be one or two where I would hope to get a homogeneous jury, but I'm never going to get that if the other side is on its toes, right? Um, In today's society, I certainly, you know, we would, I don't think we would ever get a jury of all white men, which really never happens. I mean, you're more likely to get more women than men now, I think, um, which is also very interesting. That is interesting. Why is that? I think that a lot of times uh, one side or the other is making decision making or making their decisions about strikes based on demographics like, you know, male versus female education. Um, you know, many different demographic issues and they don't, you know, they don't want leaders that they think are going to be bad for them. And so that's who they focus on and that's who they strike. And some, a lot of times I think those decisions are made on, you know, demographic characteristics rather than on attitudes and experiences that relate to the case. I think for the purposes of this particular case, it, that's also interesting because historically and even today, most, and especially because this was a death penalty case, most people believe that, and I think this is correct, women are a little more sympathetic and would be more interested in the mitigating circumstances of this situation. And these men, the majority, at least initially, were not persuaded by the fact that this was a kid, at me at least, he's 18. Um, and not persuaded by as much by sympathy 
as a matter of fact, some of the driving forces were more, you know, there was some of those racial undertones and anger and that sort of thing, and also impatience. So I think most defense lawyers would want women to be seated on a jury like this because women are not, and again, overgeneralization, but women are not going to be as harsh and as objective. And so when you're talking about what things do you look for, I think the most important things to look for is who's going to be most against you. So if I'm the defense in this situation, I don't want these men that are self-made, that don't care about any like exceptions, any excuses, that sort of thing. I'd rather have women that are going to care more about the fact that this is a child, that there's a lot of inconsistencies in the testimony, et cetera. Have there been any negative side effects of this movie? Does it give anybody like an unrealistic idea that could actually be harmful to the way we allocate juries or the way that maybe just assume that justice is okay? I mean, I think if anything, the learnings are positive, or at least from my perspective, the learnings are positive. One is it is a very, I think, positive example how the minority voice or the minority opinion can change the minds in a way that's, that's good of the 11 others in the room. And two, I think it's very, very clear how much someone's personal life and their emotional status when they walk into a courtroom can adversely and unfairly impact a verdict, um, which ultimately, you know, they were able to overcome that during de- the deliberative process. I mean, I am a little worried that people could watch this movie and sleep well at night thinking that they can trust that justice will continue to be served in our courtroom when it might be more common that there is no juror eight who stands up for what he believes in. And that, Oh, I see what you're saying. And how easy it could be that we can put a lot of people in jail. If anything, this movie serves as, I would say, motivation and encouragement alongside what we're seeing in our current political and social climate, which is much more readiness um, to, you know, take up the baton and make sure that the quiet voices are heard. And I see this over and over and over again in my research. Jurors who historically may have been shy or may have not been willing to voice their opinions may not have been juror number eight, right? And the way that he accomplished what he accomplished was quite impressive because he wasn't, he didn't throw his hand down and like, make a statement right off the bat, he asked questions. And the questions slowly mounted, right? I just see more and more jurors who may be intimidated, willing to speak up. I see more and more jurors who feel very emboldened, especially on in the criminal case side of it, which I think, you know, this, this movie sets a good example for them. I like that. That has me thinking, and I'm sure it would never be allowed, that if a jury is sequestered, their hotel room should only play this movie on repeat. (laughs) I'm sure it would never be allowed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Byers, it's been great asking you all of these questions. And I have to say one last one as as we leave. If people are really interested in your career and and how putting juries together works, what is your doctorate in? Like, what, what do you study for this? So I have a PhD in psychology and social psychology. And so, you know, really the study of how people make decisions, why they make decisions and that sort of thing is pretty applicable to what I do on a daily basis. 
I love that. Well, Dr. Byers, thank you again for talking to us about 12 Angry Men. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really nice meeting you guys. When you're talking about this film, you kind of start to see that this is a film that has a giant impact. It's commenting on so many things. And even if Sidney Lumet didn't mean to do all that, it really holds a special, unique place um, as kids are still doing this at high schools and, uh, and adults are doing this, you know, in community theaters. This is a story that keeps on going. I, I know that they wanted to do a version of this for the Rodney King riots uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer being the Henry Fonda part uh, back when that was happening. I think we saw a little bit of, you know, energy of 12 Angry Men in the, uh, in the jury room episode of the O.J. Simpson uh, FX show. It, this is a movie that really... You know, we talk about that that has its tentacles out in culture. It's it's all over this place. Yeah, I mean, my God, I I don't believe Lumet. I'm going to come down on the side of firmly not believing Lumet. I mean, just a couple okay. years after he does 12 Angry Men, he does a movie about the Sacco Vanzetti case, you know, which is about how those people he argued were innocent. And it caused like a huge uproar. I mean, I think the state of Massachusetts were furious at him for even doing that. So Lumet <laughs> has a point of view. But yeah, I mean, to watch this story adapt and change... I mean, we have to talk about like the 1997 adaptation. I'm going to start just by playing the trailer so that people know how star-studded this 1997 version was. If there is a reasonable doubt, you must bring me a verdict of not guilty. The charge, murder in the first. The kid you just decided is not guilty was seen ramming that thing into his father. An open and shut case. Or is it? Hey, what is this? Now it's up to 12 men to decide the fate of the accused and for one man to stand alone in the ultimate battle for the truth. You want the boy to die for your own personal reason. Courtney P. Vance, Ozzie Davis, George C. Scott, Armin Mueller-Stahl, Dorian Harewood, James Gandolfini, Tony Danza, Jack Lemmon, Hume Cronin, Michael T. Williamson, Edward James Olmos, William Peterson, directed by William Friedkin. 12 angry men. It sounds so 90s. I love my William Friedkin, though. And we got our George C. Scott being the angry Lee J. Cobb. But yeah, I think one of the things that William Friedkin is trying to do with updating this movie in 1997 is in that decade where we talk so much about O.J. Simpson, where he talks so much about the L.A. riots here. He is trying to re-examine it with a different lens on race. You know, he casts a fair number of black actors in the film. And he even changes the racist character very dramatically. Um, the racist character in this film is played by uh, Michael T. Williamson. They, I want to play the original speech and then the speech from 1997 to kind of see how he's using a lot of the same words in the same tone to mean entirely different things for different eras. Let's start with the oh, 1957 wow. version. You saw this kid just like I did. You're not going to tell me you believe that phony story about losing the knife and that business about being at the movies. Look, you know how these people lie? It's born in them. I mean, what the heck? I don't have to tell you. They don't know what the truth is. And let me tell you, they don't need any real big reason to kill someone either. No, sir. They get drunk. All their real big drinkers, all of them. You know that. And bang, someone's lying in the gutter. Well, nobody's blaming them for it. That's the way they are, by nature. You know what I mean? Violent. Where are you going? Human life don't mean as much to them as it does to us. Look, they're mushing it up and fighting all the time. And if somebody gets killed, so something gets killed, they don't care. Oh, sure, there's some good things about them, too. Look, I'm the first one to say that. I've known a couple who are okay, but that's the exception, you know what I mean? Most of them, it's like they have no feelings. They can do anything. What's going on here? Well, I'm, I'm trying to tell you. 
You're making a big mistake, you people. This kid is a liar. I know it. I know all about them. Listen to me. They're no good. There's not a one of them who's any good. I mean, what, what's happening in here? I'm speaking my piece and you... Listen to me. Uh, we're, we're this kid on trial here, his, his type. Well, well, don't you know about them? There's a, there's a danger here. These people are dangerous. They're wild. Listen to me. Listen. I have. Now sit down and don't open your mouth again. I mean, that staging in there is so powerful, the way one at a time yeah. many of the men just get up and turn their backs on him. And then and then this is how they do it in 1997 and why and the motivations they give that character. And when the sound changes, it's because William Friedkin doesn't just have them get up. He has a lot of them leave the room and the camera go with them as they leave the room. So when the sound changes, that's what's happening. Sympathetic bastards. And you at the window, you so goddamn smart. We're facing a danger, don't you know that? These wetbacks are multiplying like rabbits. They come over here illegally, and they're multiplying five times faster than my people. That's five times, brothers. And they're wild animals. They're against us. They hate us. They want to destroy us. They come over here, and they benefit from everything that we built. That's right. Don't look at me like that. There's a danger. We are living in a dangerous time, brother. If we don't smack them down, if we don't do something every chance we get, then they're going to own us. They're going to breed us out of existence. Shut up. I'm warning you. You listen to me. I'm telling you, this boy, this boy on trial, we got him. We got him. That's one at least. I'll say that we get him before his kind gets us. I don't give a damn about the law. Why should I? They don't. Now I'm telling you. I've heard enough. You just stop all this. Come on, wake up, man. We can make a difference here. Sit down. And don't open your filthy mouth again. I mean, there there is a difference, I guess, in the actorly delivery as well. I mean, Lumet is really interested in the man running out of steam. You know, like, yeah, feeling that isolation, feeling like he can't actually realize anymore that he speaks for the common opinion, that his opinion is and should be isolated. Whereas I think Friedkin is more interested in you know, a rational person letting him, shutting him down, you know, and being like this, no, you are wrong. And that more direct confrontation. You know, yes, you can remake this movie every 10 years and you probably have a great film because the basis of it is really just actors acting against each other. And, and, you know, there's just an inherent drama and tension in it. But what I really like about the original is it is so vague. It is so open and shut that it allows you to put your own, point of view on what's going on in the world to it. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to, I don't think you wouldn't want to switch it up that much because at the end of the day, the result is still the same. You know, you're getting people from different walks of life and there's different attitudes. Uh, but there's something in the, maybe it's because it's black and white, maybe because it is like almost a, all these men, It's there's something faceless about the movie in a really interesting way that when I watched it last night, it felt so relevant to me. It didn't have to have anything very specific about it. Like that freaking version seems to be a little bit more specific, a little bit more pushing on either side of it. I mean, that's my two cents. I don't know if I feel like I'm going to live and die by that, but I, I, there's, there's something about this movie that just kind of exists really purely. 
No, that's fair. Like, I mean, it makes me think if we if there were women, say, in that room, then it would change and become a story about yes. men and women. You know, and which I don't that. want it's it to like, be yeah. about that. I want it to be a clear neutral. And I and we are. I think we as on audiences and as people are unable to see. We would be unable, I think, to see it as clear neutral. Maybe. You know, Amy, do you do you think that this movie belongs on the list? I mean, I do really love this movie. I really do love yeah, this movie. And I having do too. to see it, like my love is so fresh. I wonder how I'd, I'll feel in an, a day, but this movie feels so accurate. It feels so spot on. And it, I mean, I wouldn't, ugh, I really like it. I mean, part of why it flopped at the time was just because of the way they released it. You know, they, they were hoping for kind of a Marty-ish type of success. You know, where mm-hmm. Marty, you know, Marty also, we talked about Marty when we talked about Lumet before, you know, a TV movie that was so wonderful, comes out, it actually winds up winning Cannes, it wins the Oscar, just like, you know, that wonderful classic film that we were talking about the other day, um, MASH. Uh, oh, know, yeah. Yeah, it comes out, it actually winds up winning Cannes, winning the Oscar, you know, just like MASH, that le- lovely legendary film. Um, and it blows up so big that like the studio gets really excited and they're like, oh, we're going to release it. It's going to be like the next Marty. We got this. And Henry Fonda's like, let's just stagger release it. That's what Marty did. Let's make it come out slowly. And United Arts was like, now let's put it out. All the theaters, one big day. It's going to be a big hit. And it totally bombed because of, because of that stat- that uh, release strategy style. And it also goes up during award season against Bridge Over River Kwai, which kind of just sweeps that year. you know. And I think sometimes you get into those years where one picture just kind of dominates and there's no voice for anything else. Yeah. So that it made it on the list at all, you know, is great. I wonder, I mean, in 1997, when it didn't make it on the list, I wonder if something like in seeing that remake of 12 Angry Men made people be like, oh, we should have put that on. We missed this, man. Like, why why didn't we put the original on if it kind of reignited an interest in it? I think when you see a text that is so prevalent in our society like i mentioned how it's used how people go back to it a lot you have to look and go like why isn't this on the list i feel like we don't often have films that deal with these topics on this list so for that reason i love it on the list there's only about three or four you know you're talking about like to kill a mockingbird do the right thing uh in the heat of the night and this uh there may be one or two others but i think this conversation each one of those films does it incredibly differently and they're so unique to each other because they're telling it from very different points of view. And what I like about this is simply that it's great actors doing an amazing job. And uh, yeah, and, and for that reason, I like it on the list. I, I think it's about rightly placed. Um, I think you should see the film. Um, and, yeah, uh, I yeah, mean, this is a at. movie, I think, more than any other one on the list where it's about humanity on trial you know not yes not the defendant everybody in that room their humanity is on trial you know and absolutely i really respect that about it i mean if people love courtroom movies like this i do want to recommend we're all at home so now i can really be like go watch this movie from the 30s go yeah. watch go watch fritz lang's fury which is a movie i really love it has um spencer tracy in it and sylvia sydney who people might know better um as uh i think her name is juno in the movie okay. um Ah, why am I forgetting the name of a movie that I absolutely love? Beetlejuice. She's the person from the underworld with, with who smokes a cigarette out of her tracheotomy. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, this is her when she's young. And it's a movie about a man who's almost lynched in a town because they think that he kidnapped a kid. Um, and then they burn down the, the cell that he's in. Um, this is played by Spencer Tracy. And um, he decides to pretend that he's dead to frame the entire town for murder, for murdering him. And he puts them on Whoa. trial. 
And it's an amazing film. Um, actually, Fritz Lang wanted that character to be black, but the studio wouldn't let him do that in the 30s. So that's why it stars Spencer Tracy. But it is a very good courtroom movie if people are into that. And it's also oh, very good this. and about justice in our in our society. We should also talk, though, about um, a couple other adaptations that have existed. I've never seen this one, but apparently in the Japanese version, it starts mm-hmm. with all the people in the room saying that the defendant is not guilty. And then one man holding out for guilty and convincing them that he's guilty. And that just seems more meaner spirited to me. But I guess I'd have to see it in action. No, I mean, I like that idea, too. Like the idea that, like, you know, you can have a cut and dry case the other way. It's, you know, it it really is about standing up for what no one else is standing up for. You know, so I, I buy that. It's an interesting take. But yes, it's this is a little bit more triumphant. And I love the way this movie ends, you know, where just somebody asks Henry Fonda, hey, what, what's your name? They just had this intense experience. They saved somebody's life. He's like, oh, what's your name? Oh, okay. You know, and that's it. And they walk off, you know, into different directions. It's a, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, and I imagine uh, for such a beautiful film, there is definitely a Simpsons. There is there a Simpsons. But before I play that, is there an Amy Schumer Absolutely. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> How can we not play a clip from the episode, the one single beautiful standalone that she did called 12 Angry Men Inside Amy Schumer, arguing a case about whether she's hot enough to be on TV. Why else would she have that dildo they found in her green room? Hmm? You tell me that. Uh, that supposedly hot and f***able girl. Huh? The one she bought that was the size of a midget's fist? Why do you need one of those if guys want to f*** you? Hmm? 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 Let's talk about that! All right, let's talk about it. Let's get it in here and take a look at it. You want to see the dildo? He wants to see the dildo. He's going to see the dildo. We all know what it looks like. But what are we going to get from seeing it again? I, I'm sick of it. I've seen it ten times. I'm sick of it. The gentleman has a right to see the exhibits and evidence. Dildo is pretty good evidence. No one will pork her. God, it looks like a femur. I mean, why even make those things? Women don't need orgasms. That's science. Lots of people have them. I have one. Hey, hey, what's the big idea? What are you playing at? Oh, bother. It's my wife's. She doesn't use it because she's alone. Quite the opposite, actually. We use it, and we love it. You must be hung like a hamster. I am perfectly average. And I have a donkey dick. Hey, let's take another vote. If anybody thinks that Amy Schumer shouldn't be on the TV because she's not hot enough for whatever reason, Raise your hands. <laughs> you probably recognize the voice of Jeff Goldblum right there at the end. Juror number three, the angry one, is our beloved Paul Giamatti. And juror number eight, the rational one, is none other than John Hawks. But is there a Simpsons? Absolutely. There is a beautiful standalone Simpsons that is all about trials. It's called The Boy Who Knew Too Much. The trial at the center of this episode is that Freddie Quimby, Mayor Quimby's son, has been accused of beating up a a chef at a restaurant because he mispronounced the word chowder. The chef is French. Um, Quimby, of course, in his accent, believes it should be chowder. And so um, Bart is the only person who is actually a witness to what truly happened. He doesn't want to testify. The trial goes on. And, of course, Homer Simpson is one of the men in the jury room. This is him getting settled in. Why bother voting? He's guilty. Well, he might as well make it official. What does the question mean? If the jury is deadlocked, they're put up in a hotel together so they can't communicate with the outside world. What does deadlocked mean? It's when the jury can't agree on a verdict. Uh Uh-huh. And if? A conjunction meaning in the event that or on condition that. So if we don't all vote the same way, we'll be 
deadlocked and have to be sequestered in the Springfield Palace Hotel. That's not gonna happen, Homer. Let's vote. My liver is failing. Where we'll get a free room, free food, free swimming pool, free HBO, ooh, free Willie! Justice is not a frivolous thing, Simpson. It has little, if anything, to do with a disobedient whale. Now let's vote. <laughs> uh, how are the rest of you voting? Guilty. Guilty. Okay, fine. How many S's in innocent? Oh. I'm only doing what I think is right. I believe Freddy Quimby should walk out of here a free hotel. <laughs> Amazing. That's, I think, my favorite one that we've seen. Um, and, and Amy, we talk about this movie kind of being this, you know, touchstone and this important film. Although it was a failure, it was nominated for a lot of awards. Were the people out there just simply didn't like this film? No, everybody really liked this film. Um, I was able to find one slightly negative thing in the middle of an otherwise positive review, just like last week. This is from Variety. And the only quibble Variety had with it was perhaps the motivations of each juror are introduced too quickly and are repeated too often before each changes his vote. However, the film leaves a tremendous impact. Oh, well, that, I mean, look, as far as a bad review goes, not <laughs> not a bad one. Um it's been great talking about this movie with you, and I think as we talk about it, it just opens up how rich it is. I never saw this movie before we, you know, decided to talk about it on this episode. So uh, I definitely urge people, I mean, you've probably already seen it, but to, you know, I think this is a movie that can come up in conversation, and especially in the time that we're in now about standing up for what's right, uh, what it still is talking about with racism. There's so many very important things going on in this film. And uh, I think it's really beautifully done. So next week, we are talking about a movie that I love so much and I'm so excited to talk about it. It is the great Preston Sturges comedy, Sullivan's Travels. If you haven't seen it, you're in for a huge treat. And if you have seen it, you probably know that the movie is about a Hollywood director who has to go on the road to learn an important lesson about life. I will say nothing more for the people who haven't seen it yet, but that's all you need to know to participate in next week's prompt. Here's the question. If you could pick one Hollywood director of today who has to go on the road to learn an important lesson about life, like, say, Michael Bay needs to go on the road to learn that cars don't explode as much as he thinks they do, what director would you pick and what do you think they need to learn? Call in, as always, to our number, 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And we will see you next week. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.